Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. The question in chapter 6, verse 15, the first verse of our text from last week, was do we have a license to sin since we're no longer under the law? And the answer was, no way. Of course we don't have a license to sin. We, we, in asking that question, misunderstand the value of the law. And really, the, the second answer to that question, do we have a license to sin since we're not under the law, also misunderstands that, that uh, our current position we saw last week and this week we misunderstand the value of the law. There, that is, there's nothing inherently wrong with the law. We might want to dispute it, We might not like it, but that doesn't change its authority over us. For example, if you were caught speeding, it would do you no good to say, I don't like the speed limit. Because what's at stake is whether it has authority over you, that law has authority over you or not. So just because as a human race, we are unable to fulfill the Mosaic law, that doesn't mean that the law had no value. And that's what Paul wants to show today in this passage that we're going to look at. The the law simply shows us our weakness and the vileness of our sin. And that's a very important thing for the law to do. It shows the vileness of our sin. But our sin also shows the weakness of the law. So let's take that illustration about speeding one step further. Let me ask you this question. Is the speed limit perfect? Is it infallible? Or let me ask it this way. Will obeying the speed limit without fail give you the best life possible? So while you're thinking about that, consider this. What if you lived in Troy and you went to church in Allen Park and when you arrived at church, you realized that you had left your baby in the car seat sitting on the front porch back in Troy. Would that what would you do with the speed limit as you head back to Troy to pick up your baby? Okay? That's the actual true story of a friend of ours from, from inner city. They they realized what they had done when they got to church. Suppose your wife is in severe labor and you you need to get her to the ER. Do you obey the speed limit? Suppose there's a gunman shooting into cars behind you and you're driving 300 feet ahead of the gunman. Do you accelerate to the speed limit and then no more and allow him to catch up to you? What if you're on a bridge and there were an explosion behind you? Do you obey the speed limit? You see, the speed limit is not perfect, is it? Will it generally be good for you to obey it? Yes. But will it always be good for you to obey it? No. And the law of Moses is very similar. That is, that it pointed us to our sin. It showed us that we are sinful, but the law was not perfect because it could not bring us to God. It it, it was unable to grant for us a right standing before God. However, even though it could not bring us to God, that doesn't mean that it, it was unhelpful or unnecessary the law was still good and helpful and valuable. And when I use that illustration, I hope you recognize that I'm talking about one part of 
our uh, government that is over us. Okay, I hope you don't see that any command in Scripture, you know, I can just obey it whenever I feel like it, it suits me best. I'm just trying to show that, that uh, the speed limit is just an example of, of how the law of Moses actually was very similar in that way. Not that the law of Moses didn't have any value. Not that some of those things were eternal and unbreakable truths and commands. But in many ways, overall, it did not bring a person to God. However, it still had value. And that's what Paul wants us to see in our text here. Romans chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. We're going to see three main principles here in this text. First, death to the law is necessary for new life. Death to the law is necessary for new life. Second, death to the law guarantees new life. And then finally, death to the law does not nullify the value of the law. So first, death to the law is necessary for new life. Verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, Paul wants to show that in order for us to have new spiritual life, we have to die to our old way of life. And his point here is that that has already happened. And that death to the law releases us from the law's authority. Notice that Paul is talking, first of all, to believers here. Notice verse 1. Or do you not know brethren? He's talking about not his physical, biological brothers. He's talking about spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And then verse 4, he says, he uses the same word, therefore my brethren. So we need to understand that Paul's talking to believers and he's talking about death to the law. And he makes this point in two ways. This first point, which is that death to the law is necessary for new life. 
First, he, he explains that the law only has authority over a person as long as the person is alive. Verse 1. The, the law, at the end of the verse, has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he lives. And this makes sense. Think about it. Let's say that you committed a serious crime and the authorities were chasing you for years and years and they finally tracked you down. The only problem was you were already dead. What could the authorities do to you now that you are dead? Could they try you in in a court? Could they bring the full weight of the law down on you? No, they can do nothing because the consequences of the law cannot be carried out on a dead person. That's what Paul's saying in verse 1. Now he illustrates it in verses 2 and 3. And he illustrates it by saying that a dead husband has no authority over his wife. Now, people tend to use this text here, verses 2 and 3, as a proof text for their understanding of divorce and remarriage. But but what we need to understand is Paul is simply using divorce and remarriage or divorce divorce and remarriage as an illustration. He's not giving a doctrine here. He's not trying to show what we need to believe about divorce and remarriage. He's simply giving an illustration. His point is to use this illustration to show that we are covenantally bound to one person in marriage only as long as that marriage partner is alive. And that seems so basic, elementary. But but how do we state it in our vows? Until what do we part? Until death do we part. That is, once one of us dies, the other one is free from this covenantal agreement that we have made. We understand this. In other words, death terminates the marriage covenant. And it frees the widow or the widower to join into another marriage relationship. And, and Paul is simply saying, I'm using this illustration to show you what has happened to you, the sinner, in relationship to your marriage to the law. Your former marriage partner is dead. Or we could say it this way. You are dead to your former marriage partner. Either way, the covenant is broken. The law is dead to me. I am dead to the law. And therefore, I am freed to enter into a new relationship. Look at the text, verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living until death do us part. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living... Sorry about that. If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Paul's saying this is the illustration of what's happened between you, the sinner, and the law. You've died to the law. You are dead to it. It no longer has authority over you. And so that frees you to enter into a new relationship And this new relationship is, we're going to see in verse 4, is with a new spouse, Christ. So, number one, death to the law is necessary for new life. Number two, death to the law guarantees new life. Verses 4 to 6. Death to the law guarantees new life. Let me just make this noisy for one second, and then hopefully it'll be gone for the rest of the service. Death to the law guarantees new life. 
So the law is dead to us and that frees us to enter into a new covenantal relationship with someone much better. No longer the law. Now it's Christ. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So, so what does that do for us? Look at the last part of the verse. So that you might be joined to another. And who is this another? To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So who is the one that was raised from the dead? It is Christ. We died to the law so that we could live to Christ, so that we could enter into a new marriage relationship, so to speak. The law no, mo- no longer has authority over us. We no longer have obligation to the law, the, the law of Moses. We've died to it. And, and, and that means that we are free to enter into a new union now with Christ. You see, Christ's death resulted in our death to our former marriage partner, the law. And that means that we're now freed to marry Him in the sense that we're united to Him. Notice who caused our death to the law. Look at the first part of the verse again. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Did you see that? It's a passive verbal phrase. You were made to die. It doesn't say that you killed the law or that you killed yourself from the law. No, it says that you were made to die to the law. That is that Christ did the action. He's the one who separated you from the law. And He did that by dying on the cross. He paid for your ransom with His blood. And so now you are released from the law's mastery over you, sin's mastery over you, the penalty of that sin. And notice the purpose at the end of verse 4. So you could be joined to another, to Him who is raised from the dead, in order that we may might bear fruit for God. The purpose of your remarriage, so to speak, is so that you could be joined to Christ and that you would bear fruit. Death ended the first relationship and it made possible the second and greater relationship. And consider this. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why He says that there. To Him who was raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. And when will He die again? When will Christ die again? Never to die again. And we are, are, are going to be raised to immortality. That is, no death ourselves. And so in that way, Christ having been raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. We will never be separated from Christ. In other words, in our vows of our union with Christ, He and us, He and we could both say, until death do we part. I, Christ, will stay committed to you until death parts me. That is, we have eternal life and we will never die in Christ obviously is never to die. And He can say the same. That He will never part from us. And this union results in spiritual fruit. That is, freedom to marry Christ now means that we will have a transformed life. That's what the end of verse 4 says, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The law is dead to us, so we're free to marry Christ. Verse 5, our old life under the law. Our old life under the law. When we were married to the law, We were under its rule. The law was our master. And our sinful passions were at work in us. 
In other words, the agent of our sinful passions was the law. Which is somewhat surprising because we would expect the law to be good since it was from God. But what that tells us is that not that the law is not good, but but that the law didn't actually turn a person into a better person. We can understand this, right? If we give someone commandment, that doesn't mean that they're going to be a better person. They actually have to obey them and they have to to do more than that because a person could actually obey all the good commandments that you were to give to them and still not turn into a better person. Why? Because their heart could still be corrupt. That's the nature of the law. We We could try to follow it as best as we could. We can't. But what the law does is it actually creates in us all sorts of, uh, of, of crazy ideas of how we can try to obey it externally while still sinfully rejecting God. That's the nature of our dece- deceiving hearts as unbelievers. That, that we try to obey that law externally while inwardly we oppose God. We, we shake our fist in His face. And the result of that kind of living is death. Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So when we were married to the law, we were under its rule. But now, what we needed is we needed a better husband. And, and here's the thing. is We can't be married to two husbands at one time. We have to break covenant with that first husband, the law. And the only way that that could happen is through death. That we had to die to the law, or the law had to die to us. And that's precisely what happened when Jesus died on the cross. We died to the law. Christ put to death the law that reigned over us and freed us to enter into a new and better union with Him. And that's what verse 6 is about. But now, we have been released from the law. How? Well, through death, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We have died to the law by being joined in death with Christ on the cross. The law no longer has rule over us. We now are united with Christ. But, but we need to keep in mind that just because we're freed from under the rule or the authority of the law, the Mosaic law, that doesn't mean that we're free from all laws. right? We need to recognize that. At the end of chapter 6, doesn't mean that we're free from all laws. It means that we're free to obey the better laws. Okay, We could say the, the lowercase l laws. The laws of Christ. And that's exactly what Christ freed us to do. That, that his, our life in Him now leads us to righteousness, to fruit. And the benefit of that is that the end of verse 6 says that we can now live according to the newness of the Spirit as opposed to the oldness of the letter, the letter of the law. We can now walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We now have the ability to say no to sin because sin is no longer our master. We now have the ability to say yes to the Spirit. We now have the ability to please God as we didn't before. So, Death to the law is necessary for life, number one. Number two, death to the law guarantees new life. And then number three, death to the law does not nullify the value of the law. Death to the law does not nullify the value of the law. Verses 7 to 13. So if we think 
you know, I have a license to sin because I'm no longer under the law. And by that we think that that means that the law has no value, then we're wrong. Paul wants us to see that the law is actually good. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Now, before we talk about the value of the law, he's going to say there clearly is value to the law. We need to recognize what Paul has said so far about the law because it sounds like Paul is saying the law is garbage. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says the law cannot save us. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says the law intensifies our guilt. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says the law increases the trespassers, it increases the sinners. In chapter 6, verse 14, he says the law is not the best master. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says that the law provokes us to more sin. So he said all these negative statements about the law, and so we might be saying, well, then the law has no value, it's no good. I mean, if the the Mosaic law produced in us sin and death, then what good is it? Is there anything good about the law? And the answer that Paul is going to give is, yes, the law is good. He actually asks a, a converse question. He says, is the law sinful? And then he answers it, no, it's not. So, so basically he's saying the law is good. It's not sinful. And the reason that it's good is found in the end of verse 7. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So what does the law do for us? One of the values of the law is that it shows us our sin. Paul's saying, Let me give you a personal testimony about myself. If it weren't for the law, I wouldn't have seen how sinful I really was. Because before I understood the law of Moses, I didn't see my sin for what it was. I didn't see the severity of my sin until I looked into the mirror of the law. I saw how really wicked and utterly sinful I was. And and specifically, verse 7, at the end he says, you know the command that really got me? It was the Tenth Commandment. And it was, you shall not covet. You see, all the others I could obey. No murder, no adultery. I could obey those externally, love the Lord, no idols. But then when it came to covet, coveting, that's what really showed me my heart. In other words, I wouldn't have known that I was a coveter if I hadn't seen the law that said do not covet. And it really showed me how rebellious I was to the core. And so the law is not inherently sinful. It is good because it helps to show us our sin. And, and there are great methods out there for reaching people for Christ that start with the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And they just ask a person, have you ever lied? Have you ever committed adultery or had a sinful thought about another person? Have you ever murdered or hate hated someone? And then, then it goes from there to, to show that person, wow, I thought I was a good person, but when you went through the basic Ten Commandments, I realized that I'm not really a good person. See, that's the value of the law. It shows a person how sinful they are. And in that way, it's good. You see, the law was given to us as good, and yet our sinfulness in our sinfulness, we corrupted it in a way by taking something that was good from God and and really trying to defy Him. Our sin, verse 8, took advantage of the law and used it as a means to sin even more. 
Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. So, this is what we would expect. When Paul finds out, I'm a coveter, I need to stop coveting. Instead, what happens? Instead, I find a way to use the law to be a better coveter. That is, or maybe we could say it this way, a worse coveter, right? Our sin takes advantage of the law. Tries to do it, use it to, to create more sin. See, without the law, Paul's saying that my sin would lie dormant. You see that at the end of verse 8? For apart from the law, sin is dead, it's dormant. It's like a sleeping grizzly bear. We've coddled it for a long time since it's been a cub, it hasn't caused us any problems. It's now a full grown adult grizzly bear. And it seems harmless. It's just sleeping there. seems innocent. But one day, that grizzly bear that had become my friend was threatened. And it stood up on its hind legs and with one swipe tore down its master. My, my sin is like a territory inhabited by a, a docile people group. You know, a people group that they're, they don't seem to be like they're, they're that combative. But then the law comes in and says, this is my territory. I own this land. And the inhabitants of that land sin. They look docile, like they're, they're not going to do anything. But then when, when they're told they need to be removed from their land, they rise up against that law and say no. And friends, that is the nature of our sin. It seems harmless until the law comes along and says, this is my territory. Our sin is vile and ruthless. And apart from the law coming in, our sin appears to be non-offensive and innocent and of no harm. You see, God actually uses the law to wake up the dormant sin in our life. That's what He did for Paul. And show us the ugly hearts that we really have. And the truth is is that, that our hearts, apart from salvation, are in every second living in active rebellion against our Creator. We might like to think, well, we do some good things, but even the unbeliever, every single unbeliever is living in active rebellion against God because they have not trusted in the Son, Jesus Christ. They have not obeyed God's command to repent and believe. They're living in active rebellion. They may, may seem very docile. They may seem like they're very harmless. They may seem like they're doing very good things for charity. But if they still not, do not trust in Christ, they are living in active rebellion against God. And the law is good in the sense that it causes us to wake up to the darkness and the vileness of our own hearts. And that's what it did for Paul. So while the law is good, we need to recognize that it's not perfect in that it doesn't bring us to God. That's what verses 9-11 through 11 are about. The law cannot bring us to God ultimately because we can't fully obey it. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here, the law is pictured as one who comes in 
and wakes up a sleeping monster. I love this analogy that Christopher Ash uses in his commentary to help illustrate this verse. He says, we're good buddies with our sleeping monster friend named Sin. And he's no trouble for us, even while we're locked in the same room. He's just sitting there sleeping. He doesn't seem like he's any harm. But then a man comes in, and his name is Law. And Law comes in and he says, get up and kill the monster. What happens when I try to kill this sleeping monster? He wakes up, right? And he doesn't want to be killed. And the result is, what we thought was going to happen, the law was going to come in and save us from this potential problem that's lying next to us. Instead, the law actually becomes the catalyst for which we are destroyed. And notice what that results in in verse 10. And this command, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. The law showed us our need to turn to Christ. This death is a good death. It's that we die to the law. That's a good thing. Originally, we thought that that law would come in and rescue us, but instead He becomes the catalyst by which we die. He becomes the mirror in which we look and say, wow, I need need something else. It It awakens us from our stupor and causes us to realize the vileness of ourselves and what we're living with and our our utter incapability of surviving. And that's exactly what happened to every one of us as believers. We died to sin. And the way that we died to sin is when the law came in and woke us up. He woke up us up to kill sin, to put to death this sin that was alive within us. And we died to sin when we realized that our only hope was in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's summarize in verses 12 and, thir- uh, 12 and 13. Remember the question that Paul's asking is, is the law sinful? And the answer is that the law is not sinful. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we have to agree with him. Yes, the law is holy and righteous and good. But, but why did you have to wake up the sin? Why did you have to come in and, and, and cause some, some initial conflict? But we would be foolish to to question the law in that way. Because in order for us to have life, we needed the law to come in and wake us up, didn't we? We needed the law to come and wake sin up within us so that we could destroy it through recognizing that there's no other hope for me. I can't destroy this monster. God needs to do this. Verse 13 It says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? So did the law cause death in me? And the answer, may it never be. You see, the law wasn't the one that caused death to sin. But it it made it inevitable, an inevitable reality. In other words, the monster would have woken up at some point and killed the man. It was only a matter of time. But the law came along while it was still while we still had a chance to trust in Christ. And He woke up that monster. And He told us that we must kill it. And that's what happened when we came to Christ. God used the law to show us our sin and to point us to Christ. Death to the law guarantees new life. Let me give you a principle and application as we conclude. The principle is this. You can only be married to one at a time. You can only be married to one at a time. 
And what the Scriptures teach us is that we were born married to the law. The law was our master. But it could not bring us to God, could it? We could not perfectly fulfill it. And it wasn't designed for us to perfectly fulfill it. It was designed to show us our sin. The only thing that can bring us to God is a union, a marriage with Christ. But there's a problem, right? If we're born wedded to the law, then how can we be married to Christ? At the same time, we can't. You can't be united with Christ in a covenant relationship as long as the law is alive in you. And so you need to die to the law in order to nullify the previous agreement. In order to get out from underneath the authority of your previous master. And that's exactly what happens at the cross. You die to the law and you die to its rule over you and that frees you to enter into a new and better relationship, a better union. And it is with Christ. And this marriage relationship covenant relationship means that you no longer live by the external rituals of the law, but instead by the power of the Spirit as He reveals God's will for you in the Word. You can only be married to one at a time. So let me just encourage you, if you haven't turned away from everything that you are doing in order to get to God and, and repented of your sin and believed in Jesus alone as the only means to God, then let me encourage you to do that today. God calls you to do that today. Repent and believe in the Gospel that Jesus is enough. All that Jesus accomplished for you is the only way that you can come to Him. Not on the merits of your own righteousness, which you have done. Not according to your works can you be saved, but according to His mercy. And so fall on God for grace. Fall on Him for mercy this morning if you haven't already. That's the principle. You can only be married to one at a time. Either the law or Christ. You can't serve two masters. You can either love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't love Christ. And I would say you can't love the law at the same time. Application is this. Stop living like you're still married to the law. Stop living like you're still married to the law. So if we can only be married to one at a time, and if we have died to the law and now are united in marriage to Christ, then we need to stop living like we're married to the law. That's what Paul was talking about last week, right? That that we have changed sides on the battlefield. We've switched uniforms on the sports teams. and, And we would be foolish to go back and use our resources for the sake of that other that that other group, right? In the same way, we are foolish to, to continue to live as if we're married to the law. That is the law of Moses. The law of Moses is not your master. It does not have authority over you. You are under the law of Christ. Sin is not your master. So stop letting it reign over you. Instead, use the members of your body as instruments of righteousness and use them for the sake of Christ instead of using the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness for the sake of sin. You, have, you now have a new master, a new husband, so to speak. It is Christ. So live like it. Let's pray. Father, there is much to, to uh, meditate on in this passage. Lots to think through with regard to the law and, and 
some ways is difficult because the metaphors are changing throughout the passage with regard to who died, whether the law or us. But, but the, the main point is, is that we are dead to the law. And the law is dead to us. And that frees us to be able to marry Christ. That is, that we are now united with Him. Um, united with Him in death so that we are no longer under the penalty and the power of sin. Sin is no longer our master. And, and united to Him in life. That, that we now have uh, the Spirit living within us and we are also united with Him in His suffering and in His resurrection. That, that just as He suffered, we will suffer in this lifetime. And just as He raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead as well. And so, Lord, because of that new union, we praise You. You are a great and awesome God who, who deserves all of our praise. We deserve no credit for what has taken place because it was You who showed us the vileness of our sin when You pointed us to the mirror of Your Word. And Lord, we no longer are under the law of Moses. Now we're under the law of Christ, which is clearly spelled out for us in the New Testament. So we know what we need to do. And we have now the strength to be able to do that through the power of Your Spirit. We have become a new creation in Christ. And so now that we have the new know-how, we've been freed from our former Master, and we also have the ability to obey You. Help us to do that with all that we have. In Jesus' name. Amen.